The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, continue our journey in Paul's letter to Timothy, the young pastor of the church at Ephesus. And we continue really in what we began last week, looking at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5. We've entitled this two-part series, Correction and Care, because he begins by teaching young Timothy how to correct people in the body and then proceeds to explain to him how to care for some of the most vulnerable in the church. And so let's read together verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church be not burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We began to walk through this last week and look in in some detail as Paul instructs young Timothy on how to care for a particular, particularly vulnerable segment of his congregation, that being the segment of widows. The church at Ephesus, there was clearly a number of widows within the body, uh, a pretty large number it seems, that needed care, that needed some sort of help and support. And it was a challenge that the church faced, and Timothy, a young pastor, was struggling to manage uh, how to care properly for these widows. He was wrestling through questions like, is it the church's responsibility to care for all the widows or just some? What role do families play in this, and how much should the church pick up, and how much should the family pick up? Are there different categories of widows? Does everybody get the same, or, or should we treat some different from others? All of these things you can see could be sticky issues in the life of a church. And as a young pastor, Timothy is trying to sort them out. Paul knows of the challenge, and so he writes to him fairly extensively about this issue of widows and how he as a pastor should lead his church in caring for this vulnerable uh, subgroup within the congregation. And as Paul writes to Timothy and he talks to him about widows, there is a rich, rich back history of Scripture that deals with God's particular care and concern for widows. We don't have time to roll through it all, but I just want to walk you through enough of it this morning to get a sense for how much the Scriptures speak to this issue of caring for widows. And to to show you how much God Almighty cares about those who are often left here with nobody physically to care for them. You go back to Psalm 68, verse 5, where the psalmist writes that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's who God is in his holy habitation. He's a protector of widows. 
In Exodus chapter 22, verse 22 and following, we see some instructions from the Lord to the people of God, really to the people of Israel in general. And he says this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I'll kill you with the sword. And your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You go after my widows and I'll make you one. You go after my orphans and I'll make your children orphans. That's a pretty strong threat from the Lord. It's how strongly he feels about the issue of caring for vulnerable widows and vulnerable orphans. In Psalm 146.9, the psalmist tells us, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He upholds the way of the widow. In James chapter 1, we mentioned this last week, we're told religion is pure, or that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. When you boil it all down to what Christianity is at its heart, the the essence of, of what practical theology looks like in practice is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's to take care of orphans, to take care of widows. When you look to the New Testament and the life of Christ, you see in his heart the same reflection of the heart of God the Father. It's a heart that's moved consistently with compassion, deep abiding compassion for vulnerable widows. And he has strong words for those who would seek to abuse them. In Luke chapter 20, verse 46 and 47, he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day and, and are speaking about them to the crowd. And he says this, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive greater condemnation. Beware religious leaders who love to prance around and, 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 and like proud peacocks and call attention to themselves and their own godliness while all the while what they're really doing is shameful things like devouring the homes of widows, taking advantage of the poor, vulnerable widows. He excoriates the religious leaders again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, particularly for the offense of not caring for their widowed parents. He says to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he says to them, For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. It was a great scheme they had to avoid obeying the clear commandment to honor their father and mother. What they would do is say, whatever resources I have, I've devoted them to the Lord. They're the Lord's resources, Mom, so I can't help you out. So somebody else is going to have to take care of you. And it was nothing but a hard-hearted scheme to get out of obeying the Lord and to get out of loving and honoring their parents. But probably the most striking scene in the life of Christ is in Luke 21 in regards to widows and their care and concern, or at least in his day, the lack thereof in the body that belonged to him. In Luke 21, verse 1, says this, excuse me, at least verse 11. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
Now, you may not see on the surface what Jesus is talking about and why he says what he says in response to the scene that played out in front of him. You may look at that and you may think, well, wow, what a wonderful example of faith. This, this, this poor widow is given everything that she has to the Lord, trusting in him. And that is certainly maybe a piece of it. But what we really need to catch in that brief scene is how furious Jesus is with a religious system that is built off of works that is so corrupt and so devoid of any true godliness that it would convince a poor widow to give every last cent that she has and go home and die in order to be made right with God. And Jesus looks at a religious system that would treat a widow that way, that would take advantage of a widow, that would convince her that her only hope to be made right with God is to give up everything she has and go home and die. Jesus looks at that and he says, that kind of a system is coming down. It's coming down. I won't stand for it. When a people's faith becomes so corrupt that it will take advantage of the poorest and most vulnerable and have no remorse about it, it needs to come down. It needs to end. And that's exactly what happened to that temple not too long after that. The wrath of God destroyed the place. And so this issue of widows may, as we just sort of read casually through 1 Timothy, may not strike us as something that's really that important. It may just sort of gloss over it. But I assure you in the eyes of God, it's a very important issue. It's a very important issue. An issue that should give pause to the church, particularly in light of the size of this book and how much uh, sort of territory or landscape in the book Paul takes to speaking to this issue of widows and how they should be cared for in the body of Christ. It's a clear call to the church to wake up and don't be Israel. Don't be the kind of a body that takes advantage of the vulnerable, that lets them slide through the cracks and their needs go unmet while everybody else goes off their merry way, happy and joyful living in luxury. And so Paul says to Timothy in this church, you need to take care of your widows. You need to take care of them. Here's how you're going to do it. Just as a reminder, if you weren't here with us last week, the definition for widow here is a much broader definition than we normally use in our culture. When we think of widows, we think of women who were previously married and now they're either, uh, their husband has passed away Normally, that's the, the scope of it, just someone who's, who's a woman whose husband has passed away. In the New Testament, when we see the word translated widow, it's a much broader definition. It, it basically means any woman who is left alone, who's by herself for any variety of reasons. It could be because her husband is deceased. It could be because her husband has left and she's divorced. It could be because he's deserted her. It could be because he's in prison. It could be for a thousand reasons. Whatever reason it is, she's by herself and she doesn't have a husband to care for her and provide for her. And so any woman who falls into that category comes under the umbrella of this text this morning. Kent Hughes said this, American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who've been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow. And those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. I think that's great wisdom. Certainly women who fit that category fall under this definition of widow. So it's a much broader thing than just women who've lost their husband to death. And this is a category of a person who we should look for in our body and we should give special attention to and give particular care that their needs are met. And now as, as Paul speaks to Timothy about this, he, he categorizes the widows in the congregation into really four categories. He, he, he lays out those who are truly widows, and he says that three times in the text. There are those who are truly widows. Then there are widows who are living with relatives, or, or excuse me, widows who have living relatives. And then there are sinful widows, and there are younger widows. All those are categories that he speaks to in this particular text. And last week we sort of uh, looked at this issue of widows with living relatives. Just the, the bottom line of that is if there's a widow who's living and she has children, grandchildren, living relatives, they are the front line and have the spiritual responsibility before the Lord to care for that dear woman. Out of gratitude, out of godliness, 
They mirror the heart of God when they care for and love and take care of the financial, emotional, spiritual needs of that widowed woman in their family, that parent, that grandparent, that aunt that has no one else. In fact, it's such a big deal that Paul says to Timothy, a person who has that as a parent, a grandparent, a part of their family, and calls themselves a Christian and refuses to take care of that person and care for their needs, denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a pretty stunning rebuke to those who have widows living in their family but refuse to care for them. To be cold, to be indifferent, to be unmoved toward widowed people, widowed parents particularly, is an outright flat denial of the faith. It's absolutely incongruent with the claim to be a Christian. That's what Paul argues. And so the first category, widows with living relatives, their families are to care for them. And the church only comes onto the scene when there is no family or when the family is, is tapped out and they can no longer care any, any longer. There's another category that he speaks to, though, in verse 6. He says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This category he calls self-indulgent. It's a category of widows that apparently existed within the life of the church. Widows who were living in open, outright, sinful lifestyles. They were widowed, but they weren't living godly lives. And Paul says, listen, this category of widow is dead while she lives. What's he talking about here? Well, self-indulgent is a word that just simply means she's given herself over to wanton pleasure. She's given herself over to a lifestyle of pleasure. She's living for her own self, for her own pleasure, regardless of sin or anything else. She's just doing whatever she wants, living to please her own self. No sense of right or wrong. Just living in open sin. I can think of really sort of two ways that this could come about. There are those who, who were once married and, and in a marriage and in a covenant and living with a husband and the husband is now gone. And so she lets her hair down and she's footloose and fancy free. She's out on the party scene. She's living it up. Pursuing everything that the world has to dangle before her eyes. Just living a footloose and fancy free life. No longer constrained to a covenant with a husband. She's playing the scene. She's reliving her younger years. She's living a self-indulgent, sinful lifestyle. There's another category, I think, maybe, that falls under this. And that's those who he talks about later lack faith in God's provision. There are those who, who become widowed and, and, and they don't trust that the Lord is going to care for them. So they turn, as we mentioned last week, to some of the sinful ways of making a living, like prostitution and other things. In either case, whatever gets a woman to a place as a widow where she's living in open and outright rebellion and sin, it's not the church's responsibility to care for that widow. The church's resources, Paul says, are not to be spent on those living in open, outright rebellion against the Lord. And it's not that he's forbidding ever helping somebody in any situation in that category. These aren't legalistic sort of uh, boundaries that you never cross. There are times when someone who is living in an open, outright sinful just has a desperate need. They need food and you give them food. That's basic, that's basic love your neighbor stuff there. But what he's talking about here is as a church, as a congregation, when you're considering caring, ongoing for widows, these are a particular category of women that you don't provide that ongoing resource care that you do for others. Frankly, because it's bad stewardship. It's bad stewardship to use church resources to prop up a sinful life. It simply perpetuates and facilitates continued sinfulness. And frankly, it gets in the way of the Lord's discipline. Sometimes when the Lord brings discipline into a sinful life, he has to bring somebody awfully low. And when somebody is living in an open and outright sin and we perpetually prop them up, we sometimes get in the way of God bringing them low to repentance. And I think that's the essence of what he's getting at here. So there are widows in the church and they're living open, outright lives. You may help them once. You may take care of, a, of a, just a critical, practical need in a, in a particular moment. But they're not eligible for the ongoing support and care of the body. They should be called to repentance and faith in Christ. And honor the Lord with the way they live and shift categories. There's a third category that he talks about here. He doesn't mention them really uh, by name too much until verse 14. But they're... 
simply referred to as younger widows. And he says in verse 14 what should happen with younger widows. He says, so I would have younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And we may talk about this more in a little bit, but for now, simply the encouragement Paul has for young widows, younger widows, widows, women who are younger and find themselves in that predicament of being a widow for whatever reason, that what they should pursue is marriage and a new home and a new family. Marrying a husband and bearing children and managing the household. That should be the pursuit of her life and her heart. She's not to pursue a, a, a carefree a life where she lives for her own self-pleasure, but she's to pursue a, a husband and another relationship and pre- pray that the Lord would bring another godly man into her life so she can establish a home and do what God had called her and built her specifically to do. It's great that Paul encourages this, I think. The church should encourage, encourage marriage. Marriage is an institution that's foundational to the culture and it's foundational to the faith of Christ. God instituted the home, husband, wife, to be united in a covenant with one another, a lifelong covenant through which he blesses with children and they raise children in the context of a godly home. It's the foundation of the family. It's the foundation, in fact, of the church and of the culture. And it should be what younger widows still have a heart to do and are encouraged to do. Now, younger, you may wonder, what is that? mean in their culture that meant largely somebody under 60 largely somebody under 60 was considered younger well why would he single out younger widows in this category why would he single them out well he talks about it later on he says there are some particular temptations that come to younger women who find themselves widowed there are some some particular temptations that come if we were to, to start just caring for all the needs of younger widows and they were to, to live off of the sort of the, uh, the, the kindness of the church there's going to be a temptation that presents itself to them to do a few things to become idle in their time to turn into busybodies and to turn into gossips to give in to sexual temptation as it comes down the pipe that these are real temptations particularly for younger women In case you aren't clear about that, being a busybody and a gossip is a sin that the Lord hates. Just in case we weren't clear about that. And so he says as a protection measure, as a protection measure in their life for godliness, they should seek a husband and get back into the lane that God has called them to. A home, a husband, children, a family. In today's society, being a mom and caring for the home is really disdained. It's not honored like it used to be, but make no mistake about it, body of Christ, it is the highest honor in God's economy for a woman. It is the highest honor in God's economy for a woman. It's to be married, to raise children, and to raise them to know and love the Lord. Ladies, it doesn't mean you can't do anything else outside of your home. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything else outside of your home. We have biblical examples of women who did. It is to say, however, though, anything you do outside of your home, no matter how successful you are in those things, in the eyes of the Lord, it doesn't hold near the weight of what you do inside your home. You can get all the degrees that you want. You can rise to become a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You can be the smartest woman in the room. You can be an instructor that teaches other people. You can be honored by the world for your beauty as the most beautiful woman in the world. You can excel in some sport or something that you do. But in the eyes of God, the most honorable thing that you can do is to marry and love your husband and raise children that know and love the Lord. Regardless of whether the culture says it's important or not, the Lord says it's critical. It's critical. It doesn't mean that a woman has no value if she can't do those things. We live in a culture now that was just like the culture in Paul's day. There were many of these widows who dearly wished they could find a man and be married, but couldn't. And the Lord cared for them himself. 
There were many women who wished that they had children to raise, but weren't blessed by that. And they couldn't have children, and they weren't able to raise children. And so what did they do? Well, we're going to find a little bit later in this text that, that, that there was another problem of vulnerability in their culture and within the body of Christ. It wasn't just widows, but it was orphans. And there were some dear women who didn't have children of their own who threw their heart and soul into caring for these orphans who were in the church. It's another way of expressing this same desire and this same gift that the Lord gives to these women. So instead of becoming busybodies and gossips and idle and letting your hair down and reliving your youth, younger women who become widows should marry. They should pray for a husband and children and a household. And then there's this other category, this category he calls truly widows. In verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. He's boiled it all down to those who, who the church genuinely needs to help. Who needs the, where the church needs to step up and take first line priority. It's those who are truly widows. Those who at the end of the day literally don't have anybody. Those who have nobody to care for them. Nobody that are relatives, no grandchildren, no children. They are all alone and they have no choice but to look to God for their resources. And Paul says to Timothy, you find a woman like that and the church should honor her. It should honor her. That word honor means respect. It means more than just respect. It means respect and care. The church should care for her, should love her, should take care of her physical needs if she has them. If she has financial needs, it's the church's responsibility to step in and to help make sure that she is cared for well. If she has practical needs, the church should rally around and take care of those practical needs. If she has emotional needs, spiritual needs, those are first-line people that should be cared for by the body of Christ. Those who are truly widows. Those who have to look to God alone because they have no other resource. The church is the means by which God cares for his widows. I think that's the best way to say it. And I suspect that probably like any church, uh, we probably don't give enough attention to that here. We should probably pay more attention to the widows among us. We should probably seek them out a little more than we do. We should probably pray for them a lot more than we do. We should probably engage them a whole lot more on personal levels, making sure that they don't have needs that we can meet and so forth. It's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to me. They are our responsibility before the Lord and a serious responsibility at that. But then we get to verse, verse 9. He begins to sort of shift to a different category, and we're going to try and work this out in the last little bit that we have here. But he says this in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Then he explains what good works look like. And it's like Paul shifts gears here, and he starts to talk about widows being enrolled. He hasn't mentioned a role up to this point. All of a sudden, he brings up this idea of a role of widows. And before I go too far with the widow role, I just want to pause and sort of make the what should be an obvious assumption. And the obvious assumption is this. The church at Ephesus kept a sub-role, if you will, of widows. It presupposes that they have a larger role for the whole church, which is called a membership role. It presupposes the idea that as a local church in Ephesus, they knew who belonged to the church. And it was very clear who was in the church and who was out of the church. It was very clear who were members of the church and who were outsiders. And within that membership role, they even kept other roles. Roles of widows that needed care. Roles of widows, as we're going to see here, who served. And I only bring that up because there's this misguided notion that's being perpetuated by church movements in our culture today that say something along the lines of this. They argue that there's no such thing biblically as church membership and people really shouldn't be called to join churches. Really the church is just this sort of anonymous random gathering of random Christians who come together here and there and everywhere wherever they please. That the only membership that we're to have as believers is membership into the church universal. Somebody said to me once, I won't join the church because church membership isn't in the Bible. And I said to them the same thing I would say to you. Well, you don't find in the Bible what you don't want to see. 
because that's a ridiculous notion, to be frank with you, biblically at least. The early church clearly knew who was in the church and who was out of the church. They knew who belonged to the body of Christ and who did not belong to that particular body of Christ. We see evidence all throughout the New Testament of this. What we don't see is some sort of a detailed membership process. We're never laid out some process by which somebody went from being outside the church to coming inside the church as a member. We don't see the process, but we see clearly that there was some kind of a process. There are a thousand factors that may determine a process, but membership was clearly practiced. When you move to the book of Acts and you see the development of the New Testament church, there is one pattern that plays out over and over again. Somebody is lost and they are outside of the church. They hear the gospel. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They entrust their lives to him. They are saved. They are baptized and consistently saved, baptized, and added to the church. Saved, baptized, added to the church. They were lost on the outside of the church. They're saved. They're baptized by the church. And they are baptized into membership of that local body where they were baptized. That is the consistent pattern of the New Testament church. The concept that there are people who are saved, baptized, and then roaming nomads spiritually after that is completely foreign to the New Testament. Utterly foreign to the New Testament. It's unheard of biblically, in fact. If we look at Matthew chapter 18, and you see there's a whole process for church accountability and church discipline. What do you do when somebody in the body of Christ is in sin? What do you do when somebody offends you and sins against you in the body of Christ? And, and, and Matthew goes to great lengths to explain what you do in such circumstances. You go individually to that person, and you talk to them about that sin, and you seek to resolve it. And if they harden themselves in their sin and refuse to repent, then you go get two or three godly people uh, from the church, and you go back and engage them again and plead with them to repent. If they harden themselves and refuse to repent, then eventually, over time, you have to tell it to the church. Well, who's that? You call a post a, 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 something at the post office and say every believer in town show up? We got something to say about Joe here? You tell it to the church that Joe belongs to. And if Joe still hardens his heart, the end of that process is you remove him from the body. If there is no membership, from what do we remove people? It doesn't make any sense. We can't kick them out of the kingdom of God. No, you remove them from the body of Christ, the local body, the church of which they are a member. You revoke that and you put them back on the outside and you say to them, you are living like an unbeliever, therefore we will now treat you like an unbeliever and pray that God would bring you to repentance so you can be restored back into your church family. It presupposes church membership. We saw this earlier in 1 Timothy, specific uh, qualifications for elders and deacons. To serve as an elder, to serve as a deacon in the church, men have to, 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 to meet certain qualifications to serve. Qualifications for what? To serve what? We don't, we don't call elders to be universal world elders. The elders of the church are the, here are the elders of this church. John Butts or Josh Dickard doesn't drive down the street to any other local Baptist church and walk in and say, submit to me, I'm your elder. He'd be a fool to do that, right? They would look at him like, he, like, what are you doing, man? Of course they would. The whole idea of church leadership presupposes that there is a local church context and a specific church body over which elders are responsible to lead and before God, elders stand accountable for. An elder and a pastor cannot stand accountable for some amalgamous group that just is squishy and moves of people who are constantly coming and going. There's no way to, number one, care well for that kind of a group and there is no way to know who you're standing before God accountable to. I'm not accountable for every Christian in this city or the world for that matter, I'm accountable for the ones who are members of this church, who have joined here, who have submitted to the leadership here, who have become a part of the body here, who have locked arms with everybody else in the body of this church to carry forth the mission God has set before us in this city in the way that he's called us to do it. That's who I'm responsible for as the pastor and as an elder of this church. The whole process assumes church membership. And I could say a lot more about that, but I'm not going to go too much further. 
But I will say this. Let me just say it this way. I think it's a good illustration. Those who just sort of live their lives as roaming Christian nomads, refusing to ever join a church, refusing to ever come into covenant with other believers, refusing to ever submit to the leadership and authority of church leaders spiritually in a particular place, are akin to people who choose to live together but never get married. It's the same sort of a, same sort of a practice. It's the idea that we want to enjoy all the benefits of the relationship, but we don't want any part of the accountability, any part of the commitment. So we'll just pretend like we're really there, even though we're really not, because now we always have the option to opt out whenever we don't like what's going on. Isn't that what happens when you live with someone instead of getting married? You live with them because you're, you're, not, you're not sure this thing's going to fly, and you want to have that out card, right? If things go wrong and you don't like each other one day, and you get up and you're like, hey, you do the toothpaste the wrong way and the toilet paper upside down, I'm out of here, man. I'm not married to you. Right? You don't want the accountability and you don't want the commitment, so you pretend, and you want the benefits without those things. That's what it's like when people perpetually live in the zone where they just are perpetual guests at a local church. They want the benefits of membership without the commitment or the accountability. And I'm just going to be really blunt about this. In more cases than not, in my experience, it has been at the heart of it just a prideful refusal to submit to authority anywhere. People just don't want to submit to spiritual authority. And so they stay as outsiders perpetually because of their pride. All of this presumes membership. Care for widows, qualifications for elders, and qualifications for deacons presumes that every believer is a part of a local body officially, somewhere, somehow. You say, well, pastor, you don't know my my experience. I've been hurt by churches in the past. If that's you this morning, let me just say very clearly, I am horribly sorry that that's been your experience. And it doesn't surprise me one ounce. Because there are abusive churches all around. And there are abusive pastors and church leaders all around. And it's a horrendous plague on our culture and on the world, frankly. It's a massive black eye on the testimony of Christ. But I would say beyond that, it does not give you perpetual license to disobey the Lord and remain a spiritual nomad. You have to find a body of Christ where you can become a part. You need it in your life. It's the expectation, I believe, of the New Testament call to every believer. This church practiced membership. They had a role, and they even had a sub-role that was particular to this particular issue of widows. So what is this role that he's talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 5? Well, there are two sort of leading ideas as to what this role is. And so we're going to take it one way, it could be the other. There are some commentators and there are some theologians who argue that what Paul is speaking of here, this role, is simply a role for those who are eligible for support in the church. Just the role of widows who meet the category truly widow that the church is going to take care of. There are others who say it's, it's actually a little more than that. It's, it's more of a particular group of widows who serve the church in a special capacity. That within that group of truly widows is another subgroup. They're widows who take a particular vow and give themselves to the service of the Lord in a particular local church. They have particular ministry responsibilities and they receive particular support because of those ministry responsibilities. I don't think we can say definitively from the text one way or the other. What makes most sense to me is the second of those two things. The idea that what Paul is talking about here is that there's a role kept of a particular subgroup within those who are truly widows. A group of women who, who committed themselves or vowed to keep themselves chaste and single and committed themselves for the rest of their lives to the service of the Lord in that particular church. You say, why do you think that, Pastor? doesn't, I don't think that. It's okay, I love you anyway, and you might be right. But I think there's a couple reasons. 
God hasn't previously restricted the support for widows to meet particular criteria like he gives right here. He gives some very specific criteria of who goes on this role. And previous to this, we don't see God restricting the care of widows to things specifically like these particular characteristics. I think the other sort of hint is the, the qualifications to get on this role look eerily similar to another list of qualifications. Do you catch which one? Well, the one that's just above it in the previous chapter for elders and for deacons, some of the characteristics are very, very similar. So it seems to look like that this is probably another way of serving in the body of Christ in a particular way. And, of course, this falls right in the same context of overseers and deacons and talking about all of those things. Now, it's not until the second or third century, historically, that an actual order of widows starts to develop within the church. This official sort of church office called the Order of Widows that was a more robust build-out of this. But I believe here in in Ephesus, in, in, in Timothy's leadership, that this is what the beginning of that looked like. That there was within this church a a subgroup of widows who could have particular responsibility in serving the body of Christ in that church. And later in history, the things that an order of widows did was kind of things like this. They helped with baptism. They They would visit the sick. They would provide hospitality to strangers and guests. They would help younger women by teaching and discipling them. They would assist the church with orphan care. They would visit prisoners. They would do these kinds of ministry tasks within the body of Christ. And... And it seems like it because it's clear as we work our way through this text that that one of the issues is that there's a vow associated with that, that there's some sort of a vow of, of chastity that comes along. It looks like that there are widows who make a vow, a promise to the Lord to not to not marry, but to give themselves fully to the service of the Lord. And we see that because later on it's one of the things he says, one of the reasons why younger women shouldn't be on this role. If you're under 60, you need not be on the roll. Because he knows that younger women are going to be more apt to, to, to rethink that vow later on when Mr. Wright comes to church, right? You see 35-year-old Jane, who's the, the widow? I'm going to give my life to the Lord. I'm going to serve the church and make a vow of chastity. Until single Bob shows up at church. And he's handsome. And she starts to think, oh, oh maybe I was a bit hasty in that vow. Bob really is a handsome guy, and he's godly too. And she's going to be tempted to go back on her vow because she wants to be married. And so that's why he says one of the qualifications to be on this list is you have to be 60 years old or over. It was at 60 years old. I'm sorry to tell those of you who are 60 years old or older that that's what qualified you as old. So if you're 59, you're good to go. You can still go around telling people you're young. If you're 60, you're on, the, you're on the fence. If you're older, don't live in denial, brother or sister, you're old. At least by that definition. I didn't make it, they made it. In that culture, in all seriousness, that was the age that was, that was known as the age of retirement. It was at that age that remarriage was, was considered unlikely at 60 years old. It was at that age that they argue that sort of sexual drive and, and passion begins to wane to some degree. And it's also at that time that a woman has the kind of time and the kind of maturity and the kind of character and the kind of wisdom to serve the body of Christ like that. So it was the ideal age, so to speak, 60 and above, for women to commit themselves to singleness and to ministry in the body of Christ. So it seems to me that's what he's talking about. That's the role he's talking about here. 60 years old... The wife of one husband, what does that sound an awful lot like? It sounds like the qualification for deacon and elder who has to be the husband of one wife. It's the exact same language. And just like in the previous context, it has nothing to do with the number of times that they've been married. It doesn't speak at all to quantity of marriages. It speaks only of chastity and fidelity within the marriage that they have. So she's a a one-man woman, we could say. We know that as far back as the the 5th century in the 400s, a guy by the name of Theodoret of Seir. Have you ever heard of Theodoret of Seir? He's a a really really, uh, distinguished-looking man. I think I have a picture of him. You can see. But he said this. The teaching that a widow should be the wife of only one man is an encouragement to chastity within marriage, not a forbidding of second marriages. So he recognizes the New Testament does give 
leeway for second marriages, that there are reasons why a woman could be married a second time that are godly and still serve on this particular role and still serve the church this way. She had to be a woman who was known as a reputation as a, uh, for good work. She was known for her godly behavior. And he gives some examples of what godly behavior looks like in a woman, that she has raised children. They could be her own children or they could be the orphan children in the church. That she has a care and concern for the little ones and has poured herself into them. That she's hospitable. That was really important in the first century. Travel was dangerous and it was difficult and hotels weren't plentiful. They were known for revelry and prostitution. And so believers were to open their homes and, and welcome in travelers and guests and be hospitable towards them, providing them with food and shelter. So she was to be a, known as a woman who was hospitable. That's what a good works looked like in her life. She was, her home was open to strangers and she was willing to open her door and love people. She was a woman of humility. That's what it's talking about when she says, wash the feet of the saints. You, you walk around with sandals and there's no paved roads. Everybody's feet are filthy and they come into the home and an act of humility was to bow down and wash the feet of your guest. It was a humbling thing to do, but it was a practical thing that flowed out of humility. And a godly woman is a humble woman. Cared for the afflicted. Other good works. The women who served in the church, who were on the roll. The widows, who the church was responsible to care for and to love. I challenge you this morning, church, to uh, pay more attention to this in the life of our body. Pay more attention to the people who are around you. Let's make sure together that widows don't slip through the cracks of our ministry and not get the love and care that they need. Let's make sure that the widows who are among us who want to serve have a place to serve and a way to serve. And if you're a widow here today and you think, well, you know, I'm just a widow. I don't have much to give. Listen, there was a whole order of widows and they had an awful lot to give. There's a lot of things you can do for the body of Christ. Just look at that list that we just threw up on that screen. You can do a lot of those things. There's a place for you to serve. Your usefulness is not dried up because you're a widow. When I think back to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 17, where God says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. He says this after that. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. God speaks to his people and he says, you know what? You're to care for the vulnerable widow because that's the kind of God I am and that's how I cared for you. You were a slave. You had nothing to give. You had nothing to buy your way out. You had no usefulness to me in that category because I loved you and because I'm a God who is merciful I redeemed you out of that therefore mirror my heart when it comes to the widow love her care for her redeem her life be merciful to her because I've been merciful to you there's no better way that God showed his mercy for people like us than at the cross. Isn't that what it says in Romans chapter 8? That, that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were steeped in our sin and rebellion, the Lord showed himself merciful. He showed himself merciful. He had mercy on us and gave his only begotten son. The Lord Jesus had mercy on us allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, enduring the wrath for your sin and mine because he's merciful, because he loves us, and he wanted to redeem us. It is out of that heart that we are to love and be merciful to the widow. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that the wrath of God abides on you Bible says that you're a sinner you've rebelled against him you've done what's evil in his eyes I don't have to tell you that because you know it you put your head on your pillow at night you know that you're live, you've lived in rebellion against the Lord and the Bible says that the wages of that sin is eternal death that you have a death sentence on your head 
And your only hope, your only hope is that God would somehow be merciful to you and not give you what you deserve. But God has indeed shown himself to be merciful in sending his son to die on the cross in your place. Paying the price for your sin and standing before you today with arms open wide saying, listen, I am a merciful and loving God. I will erase your debt. Just confess your sin. Just turn away from the lifestyle that you've been living for yourself. Bow before me and submit your life to me. I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll show you my mercy in ways you've never seen it before. I'll redeem your very soul. And on top of that, I'll grant you eternal life. If you've not done that, today is the day of your salvation. You seek the Lord while he can be found, while his mercy is still available. Buried a 55-year-old man this week. sat with his mother, who's a widow, who's cared for him for many years. And I was reminded that we might think 60 is old, but we're not guaranteed to get there. Today's the day of salvation, whatever your age. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Let's pray. Lord, you are merciful and kind to us. You're merciful beyond mercy. You are gracious beyond grace. We could never earn what you've given us, but we'd never have deserved it. But you've given it to us freely and graciously. Or plant within us a merciful heart. May our hearts be moved with mercy, particularly, specifically toward the most vulnerable among us. And as Paul and Timothy have directed our thoughts by your word today, particularly to the widows among us, Lord, I pray for the widows who are a part of our church family that, that, Lord, you would encourage them this morning. That if they're lonely, Lord, you would bring into their life people who would bring company and joy and encouragement to them. If they're feeling like they're useless and can't do anything to make a difference, remind them that they have great value in this body and there's a place for them to serve. Lord, for those of us who don't fit the category of widow, give us a heart for the widow because you have a heart for the widow. Give us eyes that look for them and arms that hug on them. Mouths that speak encouragement and love and kindness to them. And feet that are ready to go and take care of whatever needs they might have. For the man or the woman who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, may your spirit convict them in these moments and draw them to you. Where they might find your mercy abundant and free. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.